Bonjour, mesdames et messieurs. Bienvenue à l'Opéra de Français. That is legitly correct. <laughs> Or, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. Welcome to Opera After Dark. <laughs> That is the end of my knowledge of French. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so That very much. That was beautiful. Much. That was nice. Thank you. All right, today, folks, we're a special kind of drunk because we're drinking Prosecco instead of wine. Kyle is knocking back some beer. Yeah. Um, in the Czech style. In the Czech style. <laughs> But in case you didn't know from the title of the podcast that you are listening now, listening to now, uh, this is Opera After Dark, where we talk about real and ridiculous stories from across music history. And today we are going to talk a little bit about the tales of Hoffmann. 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 An opera. opera by Jacques Offenbach. Mm. Um, so, Naomi, do you want to talk a little bit? About Offenbach? And I'll sure. jump in with weird stories. Yes. Okay. Sounds good. All right. So he was born in 1819, mm -hmm. and he was born in Cologne, and he was the son of a synagogue cantor. Yep. And so born into a family that obviously had some musical leanings, and he began to show musical talent at a very young age. When he was 14, he was accepted as a student at the Paris Conservatoire, and he found studies there rather unfulfilling and so he left after about a year and he began to make his living as a freelancing cellist and then as a conductor and he was actually pretty successful in both occupations but his real passion and desire for his ultimate goal in life was to compose comic pieces for musical theaters And there was a time um, that he made his living primarily as a cello soloist, and he became so famous that he went to England and he played for Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Albert. Wow. And Queen Victoria even gave him, like, this fancy diamond ring that he kept for the rest of his life. Wow. Yes. But he was not born Jacques. He was born Jacob, and I think for anti-Semitic reasons in France at that time, he changed it. Okay. Yes, so I was going to ask. Yeah. I don't want to sound too stupid, but... Cologne is in Germany, I thought. Is it in France? Oh, it is in France. Mm -hmm. Which, is it at least near Germany? Nowhere close. What do we know? All right, so he was born in Germany in Cologne, which at that time was part of Prussia. Mm. And actually, his, the area where he was born in Cologne is now named after him. It's called Offenbachplatz. What? Yeah. Started the violin when he was six years old. And then in 1833, basically his parents decided that he was amongst the most musically talented of the children. You're the most talented of our children. <laughs> well, it was He's... him and a couple of his brothers. He was one of seven, right? Yes. So oh. Julius, who was 18, and Jacob, now Jacques, mm -hmm. who was 14 at the time, were then sent to Paris in order to study music. So that's how... He ends up being so strongly affiliated as a French composer because Got it. he basically leaves for Paris at that point at the age of 14 and cements himself in Paris from that point onward. Well, now we know. In France at this time, there is quite a culture of musical theater works and comic operas and also mm -hmm. serious operas. And so um, he actually tried submitting some of his early works to the Opera Comique but they were not interested in his music or in his style. And so he ended up founding his own company in order to produce mm -hmm. 
his works and he opened a really small theater and he soon became known as the Mozart of the Champs-Élysées. Mm-hmm. Rossini wow. coined that nickname for him. Oh, did he? He did. I didn't know Rossini that. Rossini called him the Mozart of the Champs-Élysées. Um, and for anyone that thinks that they don't know Offenbach's music, it's uh, too old, you don't know any of this stuff, you have definitely, definitely heard the music of Offenbach. Let's play a little clip of um, something that he's super famous for. It's from an opera he wrote called Orpheus in the Underworld. So let's take a listen to that and you tell me that you don't know it. That is from Orpheus in the Underworld? Yep. Yes. Orphée really? au enfer. Orphée au enfer. It's like a big dance with everybody, including like <laughs> Satan and... <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, doesn't everybody associates that with being the can-can? Yes. Yeah, it's the can-can from Orpheus in the Underworld. Really? <laughs> yeah. But it just becomes insanely popular. And was like, that a comedy? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. <laughs> he was known say. for writing... These, well, these operettas. Operettas, so kind of like the musical theater-ish entertainment of the time, if you know about like the yeah. Moulin Rouge and that vaudeville. Was, yeah. It's like that kind of scene, right? Somebody had said to me that, said that to me recently. I'm sounding more drunk than I am, I swear. <laughs> Drink up, buddy. Maybe that was you, Naomi, that had said that to me. <laughs> yes. So, and he wrote a ton of operettas. Yeah. He wrote nearly 100 operettas between the 1850s and 1870s. So they're not all good. No, no. They, they couldn't possibly be. No. But um, the opera that we're going to talk about is, you know, The Tales of Hoffman, and this is the only really serious opera that he ever wrote, sort of his his magnum opus. Yes. And do you want to talk a little bit about that, and I can talk a little bit about the actual person, Hoffman? Sure. Can I ask is, so Hoffman is what he's best known for, or is that just in opera circles? It's probably just in opera circles, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, because I'm sure that in France people know a few more of his operettas, but okay. even even then, I don't know. I feel like the Tales of Hoffman or Le Conte Hoffman is like the one opera he wrote that mm-hmm. actually made it big, mm-hmm. and is still in the repertory today. Okay. It's the one opera he wrote, yeah. you know? and he did try his hand at a couple other things, but he was a huge, huge admirer of Mozart, mm-hmm. and he really had this goal of like writing something as good as Don Giovanni or mm-hmm. Lenata di Figaro. But Tough people- luck, buddy. Right, Naomi? <laughs> right? <laughs> but people talk about how he was just like not a refined man and had a really body sexual sense of humor. And huh, so a little bit crass. Yes. Yeah. And so because of that he didn't have like the refinement that you find in Mozart's operas and therefore you know, never really reached that particular level, according to critics and huh. scholars. I don't know. We can get into it later, but I feel like right. Hoffman I think, 
It's an amazing it's an opera. Amazing opera. Yeah. I do yeah. love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really do. All right, so a little bit about the work. The librettists for the work are Jules Barbier and Michel Carré. They both worked with um, Gounod on Romeo and Juliet and like many other they French operas at this time. Ensemble. That's right, with Massenet. Oh, so they were mm-hmm. Elspeth's favorite. My favorite. Yes, so they were very popular, very well-known librettists at the time period. And after returning from America in 1876, um, Hoffman learned that Barbier had adapted the play and that it was being set to music by Hector Solomon at the Opera. And, so, and then Solomon never really followed through on the piece, and so he ended up handing the project off to Offenbach. And then, so Offenbach went and saw a play version of the story in 1877, and then immediately began working on the opera itself. And apparently, um, his composition progressed very, very slowly because he was distracted by all these other things mm-hmm. that he was working on. But essentially, the story itself is kind of cobbled together from a series of stories by a very, very popular German writer by the name of E.T.A. Hoffman. Right. So E.T.A. Hoffman, the weird thing about this opera is that it's three different stories that this man wrote, but um, Offenbach or I guess the playwright changed it, where the writer becomes the protagonist. Yes. Um, Hoffman, his name was Ernst Theodor Amadeus Hoffman. He actually changed his third name from Wilhelm to Amadeus in honor of Mozart. Wow. Yeah. He's a, a very serious writer um, in German romantic literature. Um, his stories were really influ- influential during the 19th century, and he is known as one of the major authors of the Romantic movement. I think the one story that everybody knows that Hoffman wrote is um, The Nutcracker, yep. which is the story that the ballet is based on. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Um, and that one is one of, I guess I would call it, one of the healthier stories that he that he wrote. Most of his stories were these incredibly, like, incredibly weirdly bizarre Morality tales involving involving children. Um, they're and super he, weird. Yeah, he seemed to have this obsession in his writing with a struggle between good and evil, mm-hmm. and especially in relation to the souls of his characters. Yep. And in most of his tales, the force of darkness ends up prevailing mm. at the end. So it, it, a lot of his stuff is like fairy tale folklore for grown ups. Right. So you've got the source material, which is very dark, very German. And then it's being set to music by this man who is um, basically bit. known for like champagne and can cans and, <laughs> yes. and dancing ar- and dancing around stuff. Like, uh, not perversion, stop <laughs> Just it. Sexual humor. Oh, yeah. So totally I, I don't normal. really. I mean, we can't know for certain what really drew Offenbach to uh, the source material, but I think, as Naomi said, it took him a really, really long time to write it. There is a theory that um, the reason Offenbach was drawn to it is that. Um, as he was nearing death himself, he sort of found a kindred spirit in Hoffman, who, you know, being deeply German, was kind of death obsessed. And so Offenbach really saw himself on that. Could also be that he just thought it was a good story and also and wanted to write music, you know? I could be wrong, but Offenbach didn't actually finish the opera. He did not. He died before he was able to he died create in a complete a- yeah. version of it. He died Tragic. in 1880, mm-hmm. which was four months before it premiered in February of 1881. Um, he did complete a full piano score, and he orchestrated the prologue and the first act. But because of this, and this is real complicated, so stick with me. 
Um, there are different editions of the opera mm -hmm. that emerged, and some bear like no resemblance whatsoever to the original work. Wait, like no resemblance, period? Or just like they're... Well, I mean, well, there's like, just you know, a like lot a of liberties taken right. okay. in order to complete it in a way that, you know, made sense to the people completing the work. There are versions that have dialogue in it instead of sung scenes. Mm -hmm. There are mm -hmm. versions where the acts are switched. There are versions yes. without prologues or epilogues, that kind of stuff. Or without act two, or I should say without the Antonia act. There are some versions that? that cut Antonia altogether, yep. and then there are some versions where they move Antonia to the end, like that it's the last thing that you see because people say that it was the last thing that Hoffman mm -hmm. or Offenbach wrote. And so, uh. anyway, but we'll right. get into that in a minute. So the version performed at the premiere um, was finished by a man named Ernst uh, Giro, who completed Offenbach's scoring and he wrote all the recits. Although there was a gas explosion and a fire that occurred at the, <laughs> at the theater after the second performance, which burned everything to the ground, including all the music. Oh, and no. then there was another fire at the Opera Comique in 1887, six years later, that destroyed all the orchestral parts. Damn. Yeah. Since then, <laughs> there are all these additions that we were just talking about that have continued to appear. Although the emphasis, particularly since the 1970s, has shifted to um, authenticity. In this regard, there was a, a milestone in 1992 with what's known as the Michael K. edition mm -hmm. that then added additional music that was found and published in 1999. And when I say found and published, I, I mean like this dude was in an attic somewhere. And then this is the story. I don't know if this is true. And he opened up a chest and there was like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> often box like original manuscript that wow. he used to create this edition. Of course, mm -hmm. this edition is like four hours long, but um, hey. he's like, we're adding all the music. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how it made its way into that chest. Nobody knows. That is the, the mythical, magical story of how this edition came into being. But the Michael K. edition is the edition that um, is used now. Yes. Okay. For the world premiere, the Julieta Act was deleted, and the music was redispersed into the other acts, including the famous Barcarolle, because it had been like an unfinished section. Giro mm. thought that it didn't make sense to complete it as an act and instead tried to like break, just it, up. break it up and incorporate the music. Like the greatest hits of it. Yeah, yeah, elsewhere. That seems odd though, because at least the version that I've seen of the opera, the whole point of the different acts is that it's different women in each act. Right, well, when it made its Vienna premiere in 1881, the Antonia Act was reinserted, but mm -hmm. then flip-flopped with Giulietta. So that be, to, since the Antonia Act, or sorry, the Giulietta Act was the shortest, they put it back in, but then put it in the middle just so mm. that it mm -hmm. wasn't as weird that it was shorter than everything else. Yeah. Um, but that's what I still mean, you know, like yeah. in adding those different aspects, unless they just eliminated Giulietta as a character, and I think so. reinserted the music elsewhere. That would work, yeah. but if there was, it wouldn't make sense with the whole, you know. Well, also I have to say that <laughs> the the idea that the whole opera is framed as if these three women are like illusions or versions of a woman in Hoffman's mind is perhaps an explanation of the story that was not fully flushed out in Offenbach's autographs. That's entirely possible. Yeah. I mean, I think that the biggest change in that Michael K. edition, other than like Antonia's Act Two and Julia's mm -hmm. Act Three, is like fleshing out the character of Niklaus slash the Muse. 
Right. Okay. That makes sense. Right. Interesting. Yeah. When you have to teach this opera, it's very complicated. It's very complicated. Yeah. And when you're like, what score do I use? <laughs> and and what good. score am I looking at? Then That's why we talk about it, right? Yeah. It's really Clear interesting. It up. Get all the ideas out there. Yeah, it's true. You want to delve into the the plot? All right. Le well, plot. I thought <laughs> first we should talk about, as Elspeth mentioned, there are many different stories by E.T.A. Hoffman, the original real E.T.A. Hoffman, mm -hmm. that then the librettists and playwrights are like amalgamating into one story and tying together by turning the writer himself into the protagonist right. in this structure. And so there are four, so four stories that were used as source material for the different sections in the opera. And so I thought we would go through what these stories are. Mm -hmm. So the, f the first one um, was Der Sandman, or The Sandman, mm -hmm. originally written in 1816. And it was from a collection of stories called Die Nachtstücke, or The Night Pieces. And in the original story, the Sandman haunts the imagination of a young boy, Nathaniel. And as he was told as a child, that the Sandman, who is known in German folklore to put sand in children's eyes to make them fall asleep, mm -hmm. right, is really out to steal the eyeballs of children who won't go to bed and oh. then feed the eyeballs to his own children who <laughs> live in the moon. Like, I've gone through and I've actually read these stories and I can't emphasize enough how much weirder they are <laughs> than they are in the opera. They're just so, like, very unsettling, like, yes. super Germanic. You know, they're very awful, but continue. Isn't yes, and, and the playwrights and librettists actually intentionally toned like, down softened some of and it. softened yeah. just how bizarre they were. Isn't it great how these stories are created by just, like, w wicked parents that just want to scare the shit out of their kids? <laughs> But Go if you to ever... bed, or the Sandman's going to come. He's going <laughs> to take, take your, your eyeballs. eyeballs. Yeah. They're going to be gone. They're going to get fed to his children. So go to bed. But if you get a chance, there is um, a version of The Nutcracker where Maurice Sendak did all the illustrations. That's this incredible, beautiful book. I had it when I was a kid growing up. But if you ever read it, The Nutcracker is much, much weirder and much, much more darker and really strange. Really? Very different from the from the ballet. Like what? Like what's an example? I mean, Drosselmeyer is like a much weirder character when they go into like the story of how the Nutcracker, um, but the prince became a Nutcracker. Like everything's very weird and strangely sexual, and mm. it's just very creepy. But I highly recommend that book because the illustrations are fantastic. <laughs> Sorry. Especially during the sexual parts. Am I right? Am I right? <sighs> <laughs> So back yeah. to Der Sandman. I got to bring it down a little bit, you know. Back to the plucking out of thing, eyeballs. Yeah, things, right. things can't get too lofty or else. Speaking of sexual things. <laughs> plucking so, out eyeballs. So as it's a, a child in this oh. story, Nathaniel came to associate the Sandman with a mysterious nightly visitor that would come visit his father, who was a really obnoxious lawyer named Capellius, and who would come and like carry out of, like alchemist experiments on Nathaniel's father. <laughs> and then later in the story, Nathaniel meets a physics professor, Spallanzani, and his daughter Olympia. And Nathaniel bears his soul to Olympia through an emotional poem. Her reaction is telling him to throw the crazy poem into the fire. 
In response, feeling spurned, Nathaniel calls her an inanimate accursed automaton. And then when he returns mm. years later, the view from where he's living ends up being like an eyesight of Olympia's room. And so Nathaniel becomes obsessed with viewing her through a telescope, but mm. notices, yeah, but Sorry. notices that she rarely ever moves. Uh, when he's, you know, spying on her through the telescope. So he goes to Spallanzani's house to investigate. And from what I remember from this point onward, something really traumatizing happens where, like, as Nathaniel's looking through the telescope... Like, like rip her arms off or something. They rip Olympia's arms and eyeballs out. Yeah. Oh. And so he becomes traumatized by the idea of eyeballs. And so... And that's gotcha. where the obsession with... Um, eyes in the opera and like giving Olympia human-like eyes mm-hmm. yeah, ties into the story. Olympia actually is a doll in the opera. Right. Yeah. So do we want to go through the I'm rest telling of the you stories the, and then do the The stories opera? that then the opera gets based on. Oh, so it's going to be long. Yeah, that's fair enough. Drink. That's okay. I'm, I'm just... All right, next story? Yes, please. All right. Pray tell. So Order, an, another story... It can only get better. ...is Rath Crespel or Counselor Crespel... Also known in English, this story, as the Cremona Violin in 1818. Oh, this sounds weird. Yeah. So in this story, the focus is on a girl named Antonia and her guardian, Crespel, and also Antonia's father, who was a lawyer who had a passion for making violins and then destroying them once he had played them. Weird. Weird, yes. And then so after Antonia's mother dies, her father flees, and Crespel is left to look after Antonia, and he locks her up, much like Dr. Bartolo locks up Rosina in the Barber of Seville. Mm-hmm. So with, like, weird intentions of maybe someday marrying her when she's Jeez. old enough. So Creeps. Crispell forbids Antonia to ever sing because she's in very poor health and he believes that she can't stand the exertion. Um, and Antonia's fiancé persists and it keeps encouraging her to sing. And then Crispell tries to fend him off. And then Antonia becomes inspired to sing again when a violin is played because it's like a link to her father, and so which ends in her death. So she sings herself to death, basically. And in the story, Jeez. her dead mother's oh. voice never enters the picture. Like there's no dead mother in this. It's just all about her father and his like weird obsession with making and then breaking violins. Story number three is called Das Folona Spiegelbild, or The Lost Reflection. And it's from a collection called The Adventures of New Year's Eve, 1814. And this is essentially about a German who goes to Florence where he is seduced by a prostitute and then murders a rival. And then the devil, disguised as a man named Dappertutto, offers to protect the German in exchange for his reflection. Mm -hmm. So this is a deal with the devil story. And the German is lured by the devil deeper and deeper into his lair. Uh, this all also sounds very similar to the German story of Der Freischutz, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, he basically, the German, barely escapes by invoking the name of Christ. And that's how the story kind of ends. Right. Wait, so which? That's story number three. This is Juliet Act. But in Julieta, oh, really? he doesn't, like, invoke the name of Christ no. or anything. He loses his soul. Yeah. Oh, all right. Yeah. That's how they act. Yeah. Fair enough. And then the fourth story is one that you're all waiting for. Mm-hmm. And this is one that I had to look a lot to figure out what this story was because everybody asks, you know, what is the whole little ballad of Klein Zock based mm-hmm. on in the opera? And it's many people's favorite part yeah, of the I was opera. Say, what is it other than amazing? <laughs> right. So it actually is drawn from 
uh, a story called Kleine Sache Genat Zinnober, or Little Zocks called Cinnabar. <laughs> and Cinnabar. it's the most difficult to decipher exactly how it's incorporated into the work because it really only applies to that one number. Um, but aren't they saying, like, hey, Hoffman, tell us about Klein Zock? Yes. And mm-hmm. just basically mm-hmm. does. Right. So the original story is a fairy tale including confused identities, magic, romantic students, strange beings, etc., all very fantastical elements that the real E.T.A. Hoffman really liked writing about. Mm-hmm. And so the story uh, goes that Frenet, who is mentioned, I think that's how you say it, um, in the Ballad of Kleinzach, was a famously beautiful courtesan of ancient Greece, a woman whose heart was set on money as well as love. And... I don't have all the details of this story, but in Kleinzock, the number in the opera, mm-hmm. Hoffman sings about how Kleinzock is this strange character who has a hump on his back and um, strange headwear and makes noises when he walks. And We must listen to some. I don't know if there's more to say, but... Well, I just remember from the story that Kleinzock is like this little creature in the original ETA Hoffman story who's like human, but he also like lives in the sack on the back of a person who like gathers firewood. So he has like <laughs> firewood for feet or sticks for feet. Uh-huh. And then he ends up like making a, a deal of some kind in order to like transform his body or something like that. But it's very obscure. So, well, I think the, the main reason that people enjoy this. Aria is that it's just so damn catchy. Yes. It's very catchy and it is very we can go into it some more but the role of of Hoffman is really brutal for the tenor. Yes. Because mm-hmm. once you get on stage you're basically on for the entire act and because it's French it's really high mm-hmm. um, and it's pretty it's pretty brutal but man when it's sung well it's like oh yeah. Nothing else like it. In the opening of this particular aria is just like this mega yep. belting out of the tenor. It's like mm-hmm. really, really high. Bum, bah, dun, dun, dun. And there's a lot of high notes that he has to hold very dramatically. Mm-hmm. So whenever you see it, if yeah. the tenor's amazing, then you're like, wow. Let's listen to it. Okay. Let's just screw it. Let's yeah, this it. is the ballad of Kleinzach by From Offenbach. The prologue of the Tales of Hoffman. <laughs> Voilà, voilà, 
So to jump right into the story from from there, Hoffman oh, and his man. what? I just I feel like I want to even talk about that already even more, but we already did it. We did. What else do you want to say about it? It's just great. You love it? It's, yeah. I feel like the choreography for it is always very fun, fun and inventive. It's just catchy, and like I said, it's really high, but for a really good tenor, it hits right in that. Sweet spot, Sweet spot. Mm-hmm. and oh, it's yeah. just it just rings when it's sung really well. That might be one of my favorite arias of all time. Yeah, yeah, time. I like it. I, like I also love the little moment where he like gets distracted or interrupted, and he starts daydreaming yeah. about Stella. Oh yeah, oh it's beautiful. <laughs> and everybody's yeah. like, "What the? Hell? What are you doing?" <laughs> all right, so Hoffman and his friend Niklaus, who is secretly the muse of poetry, um, they go into a tavern. They have just been to a performance of Don Giovanni, um, which apparently sucked. <laughs> <laughs> um, they went because Hoffman's current love is they a prima donna suck. there. You know? That is not Aww. true. Singing Donna Anna. Um, so Niklaus and Hoffman get drunk at the tavern, and then everyone asks him to sing the story of Klein Sock. So he does what we just heard. Um, and then, like Naomi said, he starts daydreaming about Stella and about... Stella! Stella! <laughs> <laughs> Um, who is also uh, the mistress of the counselor Lindorf. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and one thing to know about this opera is that counselor Lindorf is the base character, and he's going to be played by the same person in every iteration of the story. And a lot of productions, um, the Stella and the other lead women and all the other acts are played by the same person because they're supposed to all represent, like, Right. It's the all, one figment in his mind. It's when all very that does metaphorical. Happen. It's all yeah. very metaphorical. But it seems like common practice is the same baritone does the four villains. And that role is referred to the four villains. Right. But then mm-hmm. it's, at least from what I can tell, it seems like it's not very common for the same woman to do all of the women. All it's of the less female. common because the female roles are very different vocally. Um, yeah. They weren't actually written that way, but um, there were a couple of sopranos who, when they took on the roles, added a lot of embellishments and basically turned the character of Olympia into a coloratura. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of those ornaments sort of became performance practice, and that's when it became a less common thing for one person to sing uh-huh. all of those female roles. I think that, like, Joan Sutherland did it years Joan ago. Sutherland did it. Beverly Sills, Sills did it. Really? Yeah. But there hasn't been a soprano of, like, a megastar soprano recently that I know of who's taken on all of them. Wow. Right. Yeah. That would be awesome to see. Yeah. Um. But the counselor, Lindorf, has the key to Stella's dressing room, so he's going to meet her after the performance. And Hoffman says hey, that hey. Lindorf is the devil because yeah. every time he shows up, he brings him misfortune. Um, and then when the students in the tavern ask him why he loves Stella, Hoffman says that he loves not one but three different women. And then he starts telling them the story of his three loves, which leads us into what is known as Act One, the Olympia Act. Mm-hmm. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know this, I feel like a lot of people do. Basically, it's a story that Naomi said with a slight variation. Um, Hoffman is a very young man. Niklaus is there. He's fallen in love with uh, the beautiful Olympia, who um, is the daughter of a mad scientist named Spallanzani. 
Uh, and this whole time, Niklaus is like, there's something weird about this girl. I don't know. And Hoffman's like, I don't <laughs> care. I love her. She's beautiful. Um, and, and then I think Spellanzani gives him these, like, glasses yeah. to wear. He has yes, Spellanzani gives him these, in most productions I've seen, these rose-colored glasses. And when yeah. he puts them on, Olympia looks like a real woman, where she is, in fact, um, a robot. A robot. A super fancy robot. Um, the most famous thing, basically, you know, a lot of stuff happens in that. And then Hoffman takes off the glasses after he proposes to her and realizes that she, in fact, <laughs> is a robot. And it ends with him going, But the most famous thing from this is um, Olympia's aria, which is more famously known as the doll song. Mm -hmm. And we should listen to some of that now because it's a pretty impressive coloratura showpiece. Yes. So let's take a listen to that. A lot of people talk about how the Olympia Act talks about, in a lot of metaphor, blind infatuation. Mm -hmm. Young love. Mm. Young love. First love kind of thing. When he should have realized, in the words of Austin Powers, she's a femboy. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's this one production, I think it was Paris Opera many, many years ago, where Natalie Desai is singing Olympia and she's dressed up as a Barbie doll. Yes. Mm. And she's got plastic limbs and there's a point in the, the aria where she just starts taking all her clothes off. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just like the Barbie torso by the end of it and stuff like that. And then her arms start falling off and all kinds of crazy Whoa. things. And That's cool. It's cool. It yeah. is really cool. It is really cool. Well, the character of Spallanzani is also sometimes 
modeled after like a Doctor Evil look with like a white <laughs> lab coat and bald right, head right. and everything. I wonder if they drew. Well, no, that's all. Or <laughs> that's all James Bond parody. Right. Wouldn't it be great if there was some weird Tales of Hoffman? That was all like James Bond. Yeah. <laughs> no, right. I mean, I mean that like whoever created Austin Powers, like had seen Tales of Hoffman. Maybe. Like, Maybe. Oh, we'll never know. We should have these fembots. We will never know. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. Safe to say. So, in the second act, Hoffman's a little bit older. Mm-hmm. He has given up his scientific studies, and he's decided to become a composer. Um, and he's... <laughs> <laughs> Great Bad life choice. Bad decision, folks. Um, Poor. Poor. Bad show. Bad show. Just um, kidding. We, have, we know some composer people that are... Successful in their own right. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's met offstage and fallen in love with a frail girl named Antonia. Um, and she, her mother, was a great singer who died very young. And the girl's father is a violin maker named Crespel. And he worries that Antonia may have inherited the fatal heart ailment that killed her mother. So she's forbidden to sing. <laughs> Verboten. Verboten. Mm-hmm. So the act starts with her singing this beautiful aria, El Afui, La Tutorella. Do you want to listen to it or should we move on? I don't have it queued up, but it starts like... See, now we don't even need to listen. Let's listen, we'll listen to a tiny, tiny little bit right now. is afraid of Hoffman's influence and he's moved his daughter to Munich keeping her in seclusion. Hoffman with the help of Niklaus has found her and they sort of like uh, bust out and he's like Antonia <laughs> oh. and she's like Hoffman and they sing this like great beautiful love duet and he's and like I'm going to take you away dies. and I'm going to write you all this music. She, Yes she does die. Oh, she, she essentially oh, sings yeah. herself to death. She does sing herself to death. Um, but, but what happens haunted by the spirit of her mother. What happens is they sing this love duet and then the doctor comes to give her her medicine. He's known as Dr. Miracle. Um, he's the second of the four villains. The same singer who plays Lindorf. Um, mm-hmm. The same singer who plays Dr. Miracle. He comes onto the scene. Right. He comes onto the scene and since he is the personification of the devil, he encourages Antonia to sing. Um, and he conjures the spirit of her dead mother and they sing the super famous trio and do you want let's play some of that at least okay Thank you. 
So they sing this really famous trio, and at the end of that, Antonio sort of collapses in Hoffman's arms, um, and she's singing the words of their love song earlier, and then Dr. Maracla enters again and pronounces that the girl is dead, and that's how the act ends. And goes, um, <laughs> One, Although it takes forever for all of that to happen, you explained it just now in two minutes. It is super long. It, it does is take forever. A very long. Act. There is one scene that is inserted inserted in the 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 new edition, which is an aria for Niklaus. Yes. Um, but it's sort of Niklaus as the muse, and he sings this incredible aria that's known as the violin aria, um, where he's basically telling Hoffmann that he needs to let go of all these women. He needs to pay attention to her because he is the soul of a poet and what he should be doing is writing. And it's gorgeous and incredible, but it does add like five minutes. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. Elspeth, why don't you lay some down right now? Let's listen to it. That's a role of yours. Listen, this here is Elspeth Davis singing Ella into a bottle. Okay. <laughs> All right. And just for good favor, let's listen to some somebody else. Let's listen to a legit version of it. Okay. Right now. So ending. most of it. It's oh, the and the ending. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Seems like it'd be a fun role to play. But it's like time stops. 
Yes. And then it just starts over again, like nothing happened. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so after that, after the long... Long act two. It's not that long. Um, Then we get into act three, where Hoffman is now disillusioned with romantic love and is dedicated himself to the pleasures of wine and women. And this act is very famous because it starts with the bark roll. And I don't think we need to say anything about that. Let's just listen to some of it. doesn't know, a Barcarolle is a folk song sung by Venetian gondoliers. And um, this whole act takes place in, in Venice. Venice. Uh, uh, the rhythm is supposed to be that. reminiscent of the stroke of a gondolier's oar. It's always in 6-8. If you know what I mean. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is definitely the most famous example of a Barcarolle. Apparently there's uh, one other, and that is by Chopin. It's the Barcarolle F-sharp major for solo piano. Is it always like the same general melody? No, or? it's the same. It's the same rhythmic structure. It's always in oh, six eight. Okay, gotcha. Mm, 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 yeah, one, yeah. Two, three, four, five, six. Um, so, Julietta. Gond- gondoliers only stroke their uh, or in, in six, six eight. eight. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Apparently, it's a fact. <laughs> it's the only way they can get into a good rhythm. Right. So the bar choral is sung by Niklaus and Julieta, who is the, I guess, anti-heroine of this act. She mm-hmm. is the most famous courtesan in all of Venice. And it ah. is, like, carnival time. Yes. Which, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, carnival back then was, like, six months out of the year. <laughs> so you had a 50-50 chance if you showed up in Venice. But it was carnival. Um, Imagine showing up and it wasn't carnival. Oh, oh so depressing. Oh, they should have just Googled it. They should have Googled it. Um, so Hoffman is in lust with Julietta. Yes. Mm-hmm. Not in love, in lust. Um, but she won't sleep with him. Bummer. Or be with him until he gives her something. Exactly, because that's how she rolls. Um, what does he give her? I forget. Um So... Hoffman is about to go off and play a card game, and as he exits, he says the words, may the devil take me if I fall in love again. And then, who would appear but the sorcerer, Dapartuto, who was, you know, the base that we've seen three times already. Mm -hmm. Um, And his desire is to capture the soul of Hoffman, and he is going to pair up with Julieta and use her as the bait. 
Um, and what he does is he takes out this huge magical diamond and he uses it to summon the courtesan. He sings this very famous aria, the Cintile Diamante, um, which is a piece that was discovered later and added to the opera, but it is one of the most famous arias in all of the bass repertoire. So there you go. Um, Julieta is hypnotized by the jewel because it is massive and she's like, mm, I want it. Um, <laughs> I like that. I like that. And she says she agrees to seduce him and capture his reflection in a mirror, which is the way that they're going to sort of take his soul. So Julieta has this big scene with Hoffman where she confesses that she's lonely and all she wants is a man who will rescue her from the unhappy life she's leading. Um, and of course, Hoffman says, oh no. And then 10 seconds, 10 seconds later, he's like, Girl, I got you. <laughs> I'm going to save you. It doesn't take long. It does not take you. much. I love um, you. And she says, if you really love me, I need proof. And what I want you to do is look into this mirror and leave your reflection. And she, he is, of course, intoxicated by her. And against his um, knowledge, she surrenders his soul. Yikes. Um, so basically, Niklaus shows up all of a sudden. He's like, holy shit, what are you doing? We have to get out of here. Um, and there's this huge septet, which is sort of the grand finale of this opera. Um, we don't have to listen to it, but you should. It's big and it's huge. Um, and essentially, like, Julieta gets in a boat with Dapportuto, and she's like, peace, we're leaving. Exactly. And then Hoffman and Niklaus are there, and Hoffman's like, oh, shit, I don't have a soul anymore. And that's how the act ends. <laughs> yeah. Dude. Right. Everyone is sort of mocking and laughing at him as she leaves in this gondola, and the bark roll is playing in the background. Mm -hmm. So that's how that act ends. And then we're in the epilogue. Yes. So we're back in the tavern. Um, and everyone has listened to Hoffman's stories. And Niklaus has pointed out that all three of the women in Hoffman's tales all represent different aspects of the same, the same woman, who is Stella. And Hoffman is like, fuck everyone. I'm going <laughs> to get drunker. Drinks are on me, everybody. So he gets nice. drunker. And then, of course, Stella... Um, reappears shows up in the tavern she takes one look at him and she's like oh my god and he's like you and he then he calls her olympia and then he calls her antonia and then he calls her julieta and she's like what is happening and it's really the music's really amazing because when he's like are you olympia you like hear a little bit of olympia's music and then he's yeah. like are mm -hmm. you antonia and you hear antonia's music or are you julieta and you hear her music she's like what are you doing and then the counselor lindorf shows up and he's like hey girl I got you. And she's like, oh, this man is an adult. He's not drunk. I'm going to leave with him. So they exit. still have that key to your dressing room. Exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they exit. And then everyone sort of fades away. And Hoffman is left alone with Niklaus, who changes out of his man garb and shows their true dis um, her true sort of image as the muse. And she tells him that she will love him forever. And what he needs to do now is pick up his pen and devote himself to her and devote himself to writing and that is how the act ends where he picks up his pen and begins to write and it's actually really really beautiful mm -hmm. i maybe listen to a little bit of it of the ending yeah okay
Now, I have a little fun fact that I forgot to mention that I feel like Kyle's really going to like. I love fun facts mm. in general, so the odds are good. Uh-huh. Okay, so we, we talked about how Offenbach died before he could complete the opera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And apparently in one of the rehearsals, he was carried into the rehearsal on a chair because he couldn't walk anymore. Mm-hmm. And he was very conscious of his own mortality, and he brought with him his dog. His puppy! And he whispered That's to nice. the dog, I would give anything to be at the premiere. And the dog's name was Kleinzach. Oh! <gasps> oh, puppy! I wanna, yeah! I want to name my dog Kleinzach. You should. You really Although, should. Although, what do you, like, abbreviate that to? Because you're not going to be like, Kleinzach. Why not? Why not? Eine kleine Sache. <laughs> I had a friend who got a dog and named her Deborah just because he wanted to like go into a park and be like, Deborah, <laughs> Debbie. <laughs> it, that actually, from that standpoint, it would be great because you call him Zach. Because then, oh, that would Zach. 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 No, no, Zach. <laughs> like Klein Zach. No, it would be great because then you'd be at the park and you'd go, huh. Get the fuck back here right now, you dog. I'll beat you. I would never. I would never. That's a tasty treat. Oh, there we go. That's much nicer. I was taking it down a a bad path. I clearly don't. But I would. No, don't ever. Oh, that was an instruction. Yeah. Don't own a dog. I don't trust you on an animal. Don't own a dog, period. Um, All right, so with that fun little fact, Offenbach had a dog named Kleinzach. (laughs) And that is Mm -hmm. the moral of the story. (laughs) Not quite, but if you have not seen this opera... You, you should, should definitely see it. Now it you is know amazing. as much. It is amazing. You know as much as you should know about Pretty this much. opera. You know the source. You know about the composer. Mm-hmm. Uh, fun little thing. There also is a 1951 um, dance film version of this. Oh. All of ballet with other people singing the music. Um, you should try to find it. You should find it. It's on YouTube. It. Moira Shearer is the star. Um, it was directed by um, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, who were the guys that directed The Red Shoes. Ooh. And it is super 1950s, and it's real weird. But check well, it out. If you want to find it, go to operaafterdark.com. <laughs> right. We'll post it'll it be, on it'll be the, in the blog. blog. Yeah. Probably throw it on Facebook, too. Sure. Yeah. The link. I don't see why not. Yep. <laughs> and so then the joys of... Tales of Hoffman can live on it's forever. Forever. I need to go watch this. I didn't know that that existed. It's real weird, but it's cool. Like too weird? No, it's just very 1950s. Ah. You just gotta, you gotta watch it. Okay, great. The design is really interesting. I love the opera, so. Yep. Yep. Sure, I'll love that. In any case. On thanks, that note. Thanks for listening, folks. I'm Elspeth. I'm Naomi. And I'm Kyle. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Opera After Dark. Bye.